We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. I'm glad you're here tonight. I'm excited about this series we've gone through. One of the things I don't um, that, that I just want to thank you for specifically is the series that we go through. It's I, I always pray that for you guys that as you listen that you're able to learn that the Lord would give you. Um, recall that he'd soften your hearts to desire to hear the information but one of the things over the years that I've been so thankful for is that if you've ever taught anything the teacher always learns more than the student so when we walk through things a lot of times I I realize one of the reasons we're walking through them is because of either convictions on my life or things I know that I think spiritually I need to be better prepared for so walking through some of these things has been such a it's been such a challenge and Church history has really been a challenge for for me too, but it's been an incredible blessing um, to walk through some of these things. You have listening sheets that are in front of you. If anybody doesn't have, does anybody not have a listening sheet? Do you need a listening sheet? Anybody? Great. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad glad that you've got them. Um, We're going to jump right into it tonight, and we're going to talk specifically Tonight we're talking about the 7th and 8th centuries. So as you know, we're walking through church history. We're going in 10 weeks. We're taking 200 years a week. Um, And so we have a lot of ground to cover. And like I've told you before, we're obviously not covering every aspect. We're hitting some high high points and some heroes of the faith, some major heresies, some things that have happened over the course of history. And so as we jump in, as we jump into the 7th and 8th century, you'll see there at the top of the page, It says, Gregory the Great became the Bishop of Rome and sought to bring the entire world into the faith by sending bands of monks to baptize and place the name of Christ over the nations. So nations at large were baptized and the church was beginning to reign with earthly powers, but the faith it produced was a nominal Christianity which the church continues to struggle. So let's let's just break that down for just a moment. Throughout church history, um, and we're going to get to them eventually, but you've heard of the Crusades uh, and and people being on the Crusades and turning, uh, trying to evangelize people into literal warfare where you are uh, trying to conquer lands and conquer nations. And so what ended up happening throughout many periods in church history and what you have here with Gregory the Great is the intentions were probably good that we are going to send people into all of the world and that by doing them, we are going to Christianize these nations. So what ends up happening though is you would hear about an entire area or entire country that they have become Christian. Well, most of the reason that they became Christian was because the rulers became Christian. Either the kings or the princes became Christian. So then it became the thing to do for whoever was a resident or a citizen of that country to quote-unquote become a Christian. That may sound like that that would be a win for the church, but in the long run, that's actually a loss for the church. And one of the reasons it's a loss is that when we start, and, and you see this in today's age, when people start being a Christian by name only, then it dilutes the meaning of what a Christian actually is. I don't know that there's a group of people who can better understand that side of church history than people that live in the Bible Belt. Um, it is difficult. We've talked about this many times, but if you were to do a man-on-the-street interviews in South Mississippi and you were just to ask people the generic question 
question, are you a Christian? Not 100% of people would say yes, but you would have an overwhelming majority of people would say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And if you were to ask, how do you know that you're a Christian? Why would God let you into heaven? What, what happened in your life for you to come to faith? If you ask follow-up questions, what you'd find out is, is that there's actually a very small percentage of people, even in where we live, who are true born-again believers. But when you live in an area where culture now defines faith, it becomes increasingly difficult when it's the popular thing to do, when it is expected for people to do. It, it always, um, it blows my mind, and I'll just, and I'm so proud of a lot of you in here for, for how... You serve with your families. But one of the things that's always been frustrating to me is the number of people in churches, not, not just ours, but you raise your children in church, you send them to the youth group in church, they graduate from high school, and then when the child graduates from high school, the family, not only the child, but the family quits going to church. And you start asking, well, I wonder why. Well, the answer to that is because church was a social convention. Church was something that you did as part of connecting. I want my kid involved with this like I would like my kid involved with basketball or like I'd want my kid involved with 4-H or like I would want my kid involved with Boy Scouts or whatever it would be. And so what we have to do a good job of in our day if we're going to learn from church history is to teach our children and teach ourselves that Christianity has to be more than a cultural identity. It actually has to be a living breathing personal faith. So that jumps out. But there's another aspect, and this, is, this should be of interest to all of us. Um, does, if the rise of Islam concerns anyone, then you need to know where it came from. How did it get started? And obviously, we do not have the time tonight for, me, for us to walk through a comparative religion study. But I do want you to know where, where the rise of Islam came from. Um, a man by the name of Muhammad was born in the late 6th century. Um, so obviously lived into the 7th century. He was uneducated, and many historians will tell you he was possibly, if not probably, illiterate. Muhammad married a rich widow, and which gave him the opportunity to have enough money to become a trader and to travel. And as he began to, began to travel, he met Christians that were... Remember what we just said the culture was because so many of the Christians were Christian by name only. Muhammad began to meet people who claimed to be Christian, but as he heard this profession and even those that he met that claimed to be Jews, he did not see anything in their life or in their faith that made him desire to have that. So as he kept going along, um, he claimed to have these visions. And in the first vision, he claimed was of the archangel Gabriel who was calling him to be the prophet of God. The prophet of God. Um, and then he began to teach these tenets of Islam. Supposedly these things that he got out of these visions. He started in Mecca. If you've ever heard anybody say, I took a pilgrimage, they took a pilgrimage to Mecca. What's interesting about that is that his first efforts in Mecca failed miserably. He saw... No converts, did not have followers. So he moved from Mecca to a place called Medina, and he began to teach there. And in 622, when he went there, large numbers of people began to follow him. 
Within 10 years, one decade, he had 50,000 followers. And 80 years from his original vision, just within one lifetime, Islam had swept through the Middle East, swept through North Africa, and often it swept through because of sheer brutality. Um, eventually that would lead to the Crusades that we'll talk about in time. And so as this began to happen, eventually these Muslims would conquer half of the Roman Empire. So the tenets of Islam, now obviously we could spend in comparative religion weeks and weeks on Islam, but, but let's just bring out some, some of the most important things for you to know. Islam denies the deity of Christ, they deny that He died on the cross, and they deny that salvation comes through Christ. In Islam, salvation knows nothing of grace, nothing of atonement, only work through self-willed submission to Allah. You never know whether or not you are approved by Allah. So, one of the reasons we hear about some of the, these incredible stories of people um, being willing to sacrifice their lives or drive cars or blow up themselves with bombs or drive airplanes into places is because the underlying belief or theology behind that is that I've got to do all I can to try to win favor. And if I can die as a martyr for it, that proves that I am have surrendered and have given everything I can to Allah. So over the course of the centuries, we, one of the reasons that we saw the rise in Islam was because of what the church was not doing. What the church was not doing. And so, what you see next, I think, is really, really an important point in church history. What was the church doing while Islam was growing? In fact, we could still ask that question. What has the church been doing while Islam is growing rampantly? So, I just put one example from church history because I think this probably points it out really, really well. There was a, one example is a place called the Synod of Whitby. The Synod of Whitby in 684 in England. And that's where they debated the way priests and monks should wear their hair. And, and basically they were trying to decide, like, in case some of you were wondering, I'm not completely bald. Like, um, I actually have some hair. I just don't have any from here back here. But if I just had to grow it around the sides, I mean, I could rock it out. Like, I mean, I really... Like, all the way around here, I, I could rock it out. And so what they began to do was intentionally shave this part and, and grow it out all, all the way around except for the middle section. So they had an entire conference on what would be the most holy way to cut your hair. They also had an entire conference on when they would place the date of Easter. Now, all of this is happening while Muhammad is diligently spreading his lies, his venom, his, satan his satanic-led supposed visions, and Islam is growing rampantly. And when the church starts focusing on secondary garbage, people will find themselves filling up their lives and their hearts with things that are straight from the pit of hell. 
And it's a reminder to the church, whether it was in the 7th century or whether it's in the 21st century, that the church needs to keep first things first. We have the largest cult, that is the largest false religion that has existed is now found itself in Islam and we're debating on how to wear our hair. We're debating on how the tassels should come off of our garments. You say, well, that is ridiculous. How many churches do you know that fight over the stupidest things in the world? Almost all of them. Dumb, dumb, dumb stuff. People are going to hell and y'all want to fight about the carpet? Get out of here. People are going to hell and you don't like that song was a little too fast paced for you. Give me a break. And the point is, it's not that we shouldn't have opinions on the way church should operate. But when we allow secondary, tertiary matters to be elevated to the point of having crucial importance, the church will absolutely, absolutely lose its way. And so that's why I'm constantly, I know I, I probably over my time here sounded like a broken record to you, but it is the Word of God and the Gospel. That's it. It's the Word of God and the Gospel. It's the Word of God and the Gospel. The Word of God and the Gospel. That's why the church is here. The church is not here to give you recreational opportunities. The church is not here to provide social aspects. The church is not here to, for any other reason than to give the Word of God and the Gospel. That's why we exist. doesn't mean that there aren't other things that the church does, but the church should do everything it does being led by those two things. The glory of God is only found when His Word is upheld and Christ is preached. So th that's a reminder throughout the ages. Um, and then we find ourselves in the 8th century. So that was pretty good. Y'all did a great job. We just covered 100 years and, and um, that, that was great. Y'all listen. So let, let's move on to the next century. In the 8th century, the church was divided between the West, which was centered around Rome, and they spoke Latin, and the East, which spoke Greek. So as the Roman Empire begun, begins to fall apart, the Western and the Eastern churches lose contact with each other. And one controversy that further divided them was something known as the iconoclastic controversy. Now, you can highlight that word, because somebody... You're going to run into somebody tomorrow and you, and you might be able to say, well, what did y'all have going on last night? And they might say what they did. And they watched some episodes of Seinfeld or whatever. And you can say, well, uh, at church last night, we discussed the iconoclastic controversy. And you're going to sound like you are brilliant, all right? But this is huge. This debate, now some of you are cheating. Y'all are going ahead and reading ahead. So you're, uh, you're, st you're stealing the thunder. We're going to talk. That's okay. But we're still fighting this. In case you're wondering what is that, it is still a problem. It is still an issue. Um, and not just in the Roman Catholic Church. So if, if whet your appetite a little bit, let, let's talk about it. Icons are depictions of Jesus, Mary, the saints, and the persons of the Trinity. And so the church began to take these icons... Icon sounds a lot like another word, doesn't it? Right. Icon and idol. Alright? So you kind of keep, keep those two things in your mind together. Um, 
And so they, they became to have particular importance, especially in the Eastern Church. Some argued that these icons were merely teaching tools, but others began to think of them as channels through which God spoke and God blessed. And often people would pray at the icon or even to the icon, believing that the icon was the representation of whatever, whatever it depicted. Um, it is amazing that when you get away from God's Word, you start making dumb, dumb mistakes. And one of the reasons I've always thought this one was so odd is that if you're not going to memorize anything else in the Bible, nothing else in the Bible, probably if you had to say, what are, and maybe I should phrase it this way, this is probably a better way to ask it. What do you think the most famous things out of the Bible, the most famous references in the Bible actually are? Just on a general scale. If you were going to say scriptures or specific things out of the Bible that most people are familiar with, maybe they don't have it memorized, but they're familiar with, what do you think that they would be? John 3.16, I knew that was, and you're right, John 3.16, every ball game it's held up. Even if you don't know John 3.16, if you weren't going to call out but one Bible reference, I think you're right. What other Bible reference? Can you think of another one? Okay, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Good, good. What else? Yes, the, 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 ten, the ten Commandments. Uh, say, right, say that for just, just a second. I think most people would probably say the Lord's Prayer. Like, they would be familiar with that. Probably the 23rd Psalm. Um, people have know or have heard of that. And then the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments... The first two commandments are what? You should have no other gods before me, and you should not bow down to graven images. You don't get, even get past the first two before the iconoclastic controversy should have been wiped out. But it's interesting now that as that comes together, is that you would find worshipers who would kneel before them, kiss them, light candles before them, in hopes that the one that was depicted would intercede for them. And so, this council comes together uh, in 787. Council of Nicaea. And they allowed the use of icons, but insisted that they only be used for instruction and giving honor to the one that is depicted. Um, I'll, I mean, I, I'll kind of put, I think we have to, I think we need to be careful in even the pictures we use. Um, that doesn't mean that we can't ever use a picture in teaching a child. That's not, I'm not saying that. But we've got to be really, really careful. You say, well, I've heard about that in the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, yeah. Uh, I had some family. I'll just tell you this. I never... I dealt with this recently. Um, got <clears throat> a statue of Mary and buried in their backyard. Convinced that the statue of Mary being buried in the backyard was going to bring prosperity and honor to the house. These are Baptist people. Huh? Upside down. St. Joseph buried upside down to, to, try to, to try to sell your house. Um, when you hear people that are addressing Mary, that are lighting candles. Now, this is alive and well Obviously, in, in the Catholic Church, you see this with depictions. You see this all over the place. But don't fool yourself to think that 
Protestant churches don't deal with it as well. When we start giving more reverence to the object than God Himself, we have found ourselves in huge problems. Now this doesn't even just have to be a picture. When a building, when property, when stained glass, when a pillar, when a wall, when a pew, when any of those things become so valuable that the church now will, I'm leaving if we don't honor that. This church is here to honor Jesus Christ. Everything else is a tool. It's just like a hammer. The sanctuary is like a hammer. So, I think we've got a beautiful sanctuary. I do too. But we've got a beautiful tool. We've got a beautiful place to sit people. That sanctuary, there's nothing holy in the mortar over there. When we fill up the baptistry, that's water. Same tap water that you get in Summit or anything else. There's nothing holy about the pipes here. This floor is a nice wood floor. It isn't, made out of the, it isn't made out of the wood that the cross came off of. And so we've got to also remember that as we are depicting things that, and we are thinking about that, that we, don't, that we learn enough from history to realize that we have to be really, really careful that the line isn't blurred, that it isn't crossed. Um, the making of these images, obviously a clear violation of the second commandment. And so we should ask the question, are there any images that the Bible tells us that it is okay to use? That we can be positive that it's okay to use? I'll, I'll, before we go there, I'll, I'll tell you this. I still battle it. We used pictures of Jesus my whole life growing up. I grew up Baptist. It took me a long time to try to break through believing that Jesus was some milk toast, 90 pounds, soaking wet, man that looked like he came out of a Pantene commercial. Y'all are laughing because that's the way y'all think about him. This is a man that went in the temple with a whip and beat people out of there. This is a man that walked on water. This is not some milk toast, girly Jesus. I walked around with flowing white robes and that, that isn't real. And so we got to be careful what we allow our mind to envision when we picture people because we can, when it says in Revelation 19 that He's going to open up the heavens and He is going to come riding on a white horse and it, He is going to come with fire and fury, I can promise you're not going to look up there and it's not going to look like a Pantene commercial. He is a warrior God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He... he he is the I am, and so we have to fight against what we have often thought or depicted so that we can understand and come back to two images that we are allowed to have in the church. And the first is baptism. That is an image, and we are told we're to have it. Because baptism depicts or is a symbol that is authorized by the church. If you're not careful then the iconoclastic controversy can actually follow you into baptism as well. Because all of the sudden, the baptism itself, the water of the baptism, 
the priests themselves now can confer grace by the baptism. And there's nothing in the New Testament that teaches that baptism will save anyone. In fact, there's a lot of people that are going to go to hell that are going to stand before God and say, I was baptized. The truth is, they weren't baptized. They were never baptized. And let me explain that to you. You cannot be baptized if you're not saved. Oh yeah, a bunch of people... No, you cannot... Let me say that again. You cannot be baptized if you're not saved. Here's why. You can have water put on you. You can be dunked. But baptism is a New Testament concept that is demanding that you be saved because it is showing what God has done for you. That you have been cleansed of your sins. That you have died to the old person you were in sin. Captured by hell. Owned by Satan. And a slave to this world. That that person has died. And you have been raised to walk in newness of life. Because you've become brand new in Christ. Baptism can only happen by those that are saved. Everybody else might have had an encounter with water but so is everybody else that's ever taken a bath or been to the creek. It is essential for someone to first be saved and then to be baptized because it is a witness to the world and a witness to the church of what, God, what the blood of Christ can do. And the second one, and we're going to talk about the, the meaning of this even more next week because it comes up in church history as a debate. The second one is communion or the Lord's Supper. We celebrate that because it is an image of what Christ has done for us. His broken body and His spilled blood. One of the things that makes us distinctively biblical. Now people used to say it makes us distinctively Baptist. I think it's a better description to say distinctly biblical. Is that we see both baptism as a symbol and the Lord's Supper as a symbol. Now, what do we mean by a symbol? We talked about why baptism, what it symbolizes. The Lord's Supper, if you understand this about the Lord's Supper, if you come and we take the Lord's Supper, those are the nastiest crackers. I mean, they really are bad. And when we switch to the new crackers, they're even worse than the old crackers. Those, the ones we have now... Um, now, I was a weird kid, but I'm probably not the only one. How many of you ever ate a packing peanut? You know those little styrofoam packing peanuts? Oh yeah, you did. You dipped them in peanut butter. especially. Yeah, especially some of y'all from Franklin County. I know y'all did. Ate those little packing peanuts. Uh, uh, those little crackers, they taste like packing peanuts. If you, I mean, they're, they're disgusting. The other ones were at least crunchy, the little square ones. But the reason you say, I don't think, that's, I, I don't think that you should joke about that. There is nothing in and of that styrofoam cracker or the little square one that is holy in and of itself. The only reason it means anything is because of what it represents. You don't eat grace. You aren't eating the body of Jesus. You are symbolizing what God has done through His broken body and through His spilled blood. So the two images or symbols that the church is allowed to have are baptism and the Lord's Supper. When the church forgets that, it comes up with icons or idols and all of a sudden, you realize that you look up and we would rather, then churches would rather worship tradition than they had worshiped the God of the tradition. And that is dangerous. Pray with me.
Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for how You teach us. I thank You that as we walk through church history, Lord, we're learning a lot. Um, and so, God, I pray that You would help us to see the successes of the church in the past and be motivated by those and to see the failures of the church in the past and, Lord, refuse to repeat those. Thank You for a group of people that desires to know You and desires to learn. Lord, we love You. Um, we're thankful for the opportunity to be here together tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.